scientists play a huge part in our everyday lives. Climate change, helping to solve the world's energy problems, improving our health, and as we've experienced throughout the pandemic, saving lives by responding with fast-tracked global vaccines. There are so many other ways we're positively affected by new discoveries. But how are scientists turning breakthroughs into world-changing businesses? It's one thing making a discovery in a lab, but taking that idea and starting and scaling up into a successful business is just as challenging. From encouraging young people into science in the first place to avoiding startup pitfalls and onto growing a business, even becoming a worldwide leader. In this series, we're going to hear from those who've built a successful science business as they share some of their secrets with us. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times, and welcome to the science of business. In this episode, finding a place to call home for your business. Later, we'll be taking a look around new purpose-built laboratories in West London, where a pioneering service to provide bespoke space for science-based businesses is being offered. First though, let's meet someone who's already benefiting from what it offers, having recently moved in there. Andy Murray is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, CEO and co-founder of Sarnia Therapeutics. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hannah. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about Sarnia. What is it you do and how did you get started? Sarnia is developing what we call precision gene therapies for neurological disorders. To let me expand on that a little bit, your nervous system, your brain, your spinal cord is made up of lots of interconnected neurons that we call circuits. And many neurological disorders are dysfunctions of those circuits, psychiatric disorders, movement disorders that we're interested in. And what we're trying to do is develop technology and delivery systems that allow us to put genes specifically into those malfunctioning circuits and alleviate and cure neurological problems. Prior to founding Sanya, I was an academic at the St. Welcome Centre at University College London. And there... I was working on neural circuits and developing different technologies to kind of target those things for academic research purposes. And I was working with a collaborator, Rob Brownstone, who's a, also a researcher, but also a clinician and a neurosurgeon. And we hit upon this idea that some of the technology we were developing in the labs would make really great therapies to take into the clinic. And that's really where Vorsania came from. We had this idea to, to take that technology from the academic setting into more clinical biotech focused area. We started on a journey of trying to found a company and put together a team and things like that and find the funding to to put Sania together. And so why is this work so important? You know, you say about taking it into a clinical setting. How does it have the potential to change lives? There are many neurological disorders that we just don't have good treatments for. And that's what we want to target, things that we don't have good treatments for at the moment. So to give you one example, one of our main clinical focuses uh, to start with is an indication called spasticity. And this is something that's downstream of other neurological disorders, such as cerebral palsy, stroke, spinal cord injury, that sort of thing. And how that manifests is basically overcontraction of muscles. So you have very, very stiff muscles, uh, hypertonia, very severe kind of muscle cramp, if you like. 
And for the patient, that means they can't have very severe problems with movement. So they're unable to move certain limbs, for example. In the most severe cases, they can be unable to sit down even. And though the treatments that are currently available for things like spasticity, they really fall short. So what we're trying to do is, is target the particular cell that's dysfunctioning in that disorder, alleviate the, the symptoms and give patients a much better quality of life. And so we're trying to do that for spasticity and we have other neurological disorders that we're also trying to treat. So we're really hoping to bring therapies to the clinic relatively quickly and really treat what are currently poorly treated disorders. And when you say treat, is it a cure or is it more about alleviating the symptoms just so they're not in so much discomfort? Yeah, the things that we're working on at the moment are more targeted towards alleviating discomfort and, and pain. These patients are can be in quite a lot of pain. So it's alleviating that symptoms and then allowing them to move again. Potentially doesn't cure the underlying problem, but will give them much better quality of life and could be really you know, kind of game changing for those patients. That's incredible. So do you find that's a real kind of motivating factor for you? As you say, you've taken this research from the lab and now able to apply it to a real life setting that can have this really demonstrative impact on people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, really the most motivating factor for both myself and our team is really being able to think that hopefully one day we'll be able to make a huge difference in the lives of patients. And, you know, from a personal level, it's really great to see something we worked on in an academic setting, not really with a clinical focus in mind, being able to take that out of the university and have this opportunity to do some good with it, if you like. And so tell me a little bit about your background, Adi. So as you said, you were an academic before this, a neuroscientist, you know, an incredibly interesting area to study. But when did your interest in science and neuroscience in particular begin? As a, a little kid, I used to love taking things apart to figure out you know, how things worked. I wasn't so good at putting them back together, I guess. But So I've always been interested in just how things work. And then when I went to university, I went to university in Scotland in, at Aberdeen. And there I was really exposed to a lot of biology. And that's the first time I really thought about neuroscience. And I was really fascinated by the fact that you know, the brain, the nervous system is really responsible for everything we do. Uh, all of our thoughts, feelings, you know, movements, all requires the nervous system. It works in a very you know, balanced, precise way, and it can malfunction very easily. Thinking about the brain, thinking about how that works, I was really fascinated. And so from Aberdeen, I did my PhD there, and then I went to New York, and I worked at Columbia University for a while as a postdoc. And then six years ago, I moved back to London, started a lab, as I said, at the St. Andrew Wellcome Centre, and that's where this research started. And did you think that you would probably spend your entire career in academia or could you foresee a time where you'd be interested in the commercial applications of the science? No, I, I definitely always thought I would be in academia. And that was all of my career focus, I think, since PhD. And it's really only in the last couple of years when we've been thinking it would be really good to have this sort of clinical focus. That's when I started thinking about, oh, there's a life outside of academia. And from our perspective, things can move quite fast outside of academia. So this was just an opportunity to move faster into patients. It's quite a sudden change for me, but a very happy one. Where are you at now? Are you looking at clinical trials? What stage of development is the technology at currently? No, we're at a relatively early sort of research and development stage. So we're still working on the technology we developed at UCL, building our own portfolio of technology to really tune this delivery system and find the right gene 
to deliver to treat these disorders. It's going to be a few years, I would say, before we're in sort of clinical trials. Because we're in this sort of private biotech setting, we can do that faster, I think, than we could have done in, in academia. How are you funded? Have you raised funding to, to get to this stage? Yes. So we, we closed a, a seed round in March, and that's our funding comes through a combination of uh, venture capital funding, angel funding. That was a very different experience from raising money for, a, for an academic lab. Took a quite severe learning curve, I would say, on our part to get the money together. But I'm very grateful to our investors who are very supportive. Uh, and a lot of friends and other people we've met along the way have helped us with the, the fundraise. So tell us about some of those lessons you learned. What were some of the things that you got wrong for anybody listening who doesn't want to repeat those errors? Oh, it's hard to say. I don't think your show is long enough to go through all the errors. <laughs> but thinking back to a couple of years ago when we first started this, our first you know, pitch to a potential investor was frankly quite embarrassing. And I, I want to go back to them and kind of apologize. But I think coming from academia, there's a, a sense that you want to talk about the science all the time and get really into the details of the science and make people understand because it's a really cool problem. And you know, when you're talking to investors, you do want to do that to an extent, but not too much. You really need to focus on you know, the business case, how you're going to help patients, how you're going to take this to market. The science is really only one component of what you're trying to do when you're talking to investors. So it takes a little bit of effort to get into that mindset, if you like, of switching from pure science, this is a cool problem, you should just give me money to, no, this is an important problem, you should fund it because it will it will do a lot of good and it's a, a worthwhile investment. Is there also a sense of kind of balancing all of that with the commercialization aspects? And what I mean by that is obviously you're in it to change lives. You're in it because you think the science is really cool and you want to apply it in a clinical setting, make people better. But some of the venture capital investors getting involved might be because that they think it has the potential to make loads of money. So how do you balance those two things in your mind? Yeah, of course. Sure, certain investors are, are very much in it for the money. Not our investors, I would say, I'm sure. But I think it's easy to balance in my mind because I think if we make a successful therapy, if we do good things in the lab and then do good things in the clinic, we will have a successful treatment that will go to market and that will kind of naturally make money. In my mind, it's, it's relatively easy to align the two. The goals are the same. Get something to the clinic that will help people. It will also be something that's marketable and, and we can sell. So we have the same goal, I think. And obviously raising finance means that you could do lots of critical things, including moving into your first space, right? So tell me about that. Yeah, so it's been a really exciting journey actually finding the space. So in London, finding laboratory spaces is very difficult. It's really at a premium. And when we were first starting uh, looking for space for the company, this is almost a couple of years ago now, We I think we viewed every potential space in London somewhere good, somewhere less good. And then to tell you the story, we, came, we saw on the website, I think, from what became ARC, that they were planning a building a laboratory space out in, in Hammersmith, where we are just now. And we came to visit the building, and it's an office building, or was an office building at the time, and they showed us this floor of what was effectively just an abandoned office site. This was kind of towards the end of the pandemic. And it just looked like it had been abandoned mid-pandemic. There was still like rotting fruit and things on the desks. There was chairs everywhere, stuff like everywhere. And they were like, okay, we're going to build labs here. What do you think? And I'm like, hmm, okay, that's going to take a lot of work, but I believe you. And then, yeah, they really stuck with it and they've done a, a fantastic 
job of, of putting the labs together in a really nice area in London, in Hammersmith, right on the river. So we've been able, we've been very fortunate to be based in the building even before our lab was ready. So we've been able to see that lab grow and be constructed and get to check in on it every week. And we were actually in the lab and in our office, so able to do experiments. Exciting times. And before Sania moved in, Andy, I did have a sneak preview of the facilities and discovered a bit more about the company who's been putting it all together, Bulb Interiors. I'm here at ARC West London, based at Mambray Wharf in Hammersmith. This is where you'll find a new and exciting breed of lab spaces opening up in the UK. These mother labs are designed to offer professional but personal laboratories to support clients at all stages of their incubator experience. Let's go inside and find out more. I'm now joined by Manisha Kolkani, Director of Science and Technology at Bulb. Hello, Manisha. Hello. Can you just tell me a little bit about your background? I'm a synthetic organic chemist and I worked in laboratory drug discovery and development research for over 20 years. And I joined Bulb about seven years ago. I used to work in labs and now designing and building labs, so it's quite a good transition. I can't imagine that there's many scientists that have moved into the world of construction. <laughs> I don't know anyone, so I'm one of the few persons, maybe few in the US, but not in the UK. So it is quite unusual. You're almost like a translator between the construction world and the science world. Exactly that. You know, to understand both construction side and trans scientific side and then translate the needs to both the parties. Can you describe a bit about what's around us? What stage of construction you're at at the moment? This is the first incubator space for in London. And we're creating incubator wing where you would have eight different units. You can have life sciences companies, early stage companies here. They can have a single unit or they can have multiple units with flexibility. But it would form a really nice scientific community here. Is every company's needs different? Aren't all labs same? You know, labs are labs. So it's different about them. And as a scientist listening to this podcast, they know not all labs are same. This is the thing about labs because they come up with something novel. So everyone has some unique needs. And how about how needs are changing? Because I know you've been in the role for seven years a lot can change you know particularly in the world of technology and science so are you seeing the demands from companies shifting absolutely and this is the thing when i started in labs and now how labs operate technology has made us such a huge impact because a lot of automation you can do many things remotely and we need to keep on our toes to keep track of the technology can you give us an example of how coming and being a resident of a space like this can really help to accelerate a science startup or scale up's growth plans so we are working on startup companies they start at universities they usually start working in the university labs but if the whatever their research works well they need to come out of the university they need own their space and that is the problem because the research is so fast investors want results fast if the labs are not ready if they are planning from the scratch it would take a long time they could lose funding they could lose right people and having mother labs spaces like that would help and we are working with one of the battery technology company who are interested in mother labs and that's their experience if they don't secure labs soon they will lose the funding it is a very very competitive world so having these labs like mother labs would really help accelerate their research 
increasing demand for this kind of space as the emphasis on technology and science startups has really kind of ramped up? So there are multiple uh, reasons. Yeah, We have world-class universities in the UK, in the Golden Triangle. So lots of intellectual property coming out of the university, spin-offs coming out of the university, but the, the infrastructure is not there. There are no uh, labs built specifically for purposes of life sciences research. And that's why this sudden surge in office to laboratory Manisha, could you lead the way through? To yeah, the, I will the next show time. you one of the labs which has it is being fitted for a, a specific tenant. Well, this is an incredible view here, isn't it? Like you say, it's right on the banks of the River Thames. Yes. yes. Very white walls, there's lots of high benches. Tell me what will be here in a few weeks. So there would be space for biosafety cabinets. There would be gas provision for incubators where they go their cells and samples. There would be areas for washing glassware, for storing various consumables as well as waste. And we have an office next door, so there is a connectivity for the teams. But what are some of the kind of key milestones along the journey? We go through three stages. So the first stage is define client needs, where we try to understand what client wants to achieve. And then the second stage is when we create uh, plans, we go to various suppliers to procure, put the package together. And then the last stage is the delivery, which is you're seeing it here. It's almost completion. So what differentiates us is the stage one where many of our competitors, they may not have much understanding of the science. We try to understand what our clients are doing. A project like this, it can't be without challenge, right? Skills shortages, supplies, materials, all those things. So what happens when the client comes to us uh, sometimes because of the confidentiality or this thing, they may not involve lab users. When we uh, progress the design further without people actually use, engaging people using it, it could create problems later on because the space may not be suitable for them. It could add delays or costs. And of course, you must really buy into the overall vision for ARC. We do. We need someone like ARC, you know, like much bigger organization to take much of a wider view. It's been amazing for us. So Manisha, reflecting on an incredibly interesting and varied career so far, could you pick out a couple of key moments for you? Yeah, as a scientist, you always think about not it's not your job, it's you are doing something for the humanity. You know, when I was working in a lab or doing even my PhD research, that was the idea. So there was a feeling when I was moving industries, getting into construction, that more than your job feeling would be gone but no because I'm still talking with scientists I'm still designing different spaces you feel you know you are contributing to those discoveries and the second thing is the learning as I said I didn't know anything about this industry and the continuous seven years has been learning and because there was no role model in the UK so just to learn and evolve from that I think that is the one of the highlights. And you're obviously a female scientist, which is a male-dominated world of construction. It often happens that I'm in a room with nine men and only women, I'm the one, you know. But I never felt alienated. I really felt supported in my company as well. So yeah, definitely like that challenge. (laughs) That was Manisha Kolkani, Director of Science and Technology at Bulb Interiors. 
Andy Murray is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, CEO and co-founder of Sarnia Therapeutics, having recently moved in there. Although it was a blank canvas when I looked around, I could see the potential. No doubt since then you've moved all your equipment in. So how did that go, the move? And what's it like now you have this new space? Yeah, so the the move was was really great, actually. So as I said, we were in a small kind of conference room in the same building as they were building out the lab. That room was getting smaller by the day because we were kind of ordering equipment and supplies and boxes were getting delivered. So we were very happy when the we were told we could finally move in. So then we had a very exciting day where we just moved a whole lot of boxes down the corridor and then we had a bunch of other equipment delivered. So that was kind of fun. I think the team had a, a good time there and they did a, a really great job. Because we were already on site and because Mark had done a good job and Balb had done a good job with the fit out, we were able to start experiments very, very quickly. So we were able to get our equipment in, get everything connected, gas supplies and things connected relatively quickly. And yeah, since then we've been able to start our experiments, grow some cells, do kind of cool stuff in the lab. Yeah, it was a very smooth transition. I've moved into other new labs and uh, this is the first time it's been quite so quite so smooth and quick. Well, clearly you're experts now, but it sounds like there's lots of exciting stuff going on. You mentioned about having the gas on and doing experiments. How important are all those little factors, you know, things that I wouldn't necessarily consider, you know, proximity to power, for example, or where exactly overhead cabinets need to go or how high the benches need to be. Do those things all need to be just so for it to be right for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, yeah, having things like the power in the right place and stuff is very important. In the lab, we do several different things. So we have equipment for, for growing cells, for example, where you have to have a very clean environment. We have other areas where we do molecular biology experiments and manipulating pieces of DNA. And then we have other areas where we're recording the electrical properties of, of neurons. And so having, you know, even though it's a relatively small lab, Having segregated space and having everything laid out well is very important for our workflow. Not just having where the benches are and where the power is, but having the right amount of floor space, etc., where you can put your freestanding equipment is very important. You know, various other things and just thinking about, you know, how many chairs you need and that sort of stuff. So building that out alongside ARC was really helpful because they, together with us, spent a long time thinking about where would be the best place for data, power, benches, everything really, in order to make our workflows as easy as and seamless as possible. So it's it's very critical. We've talked a lot about the kind of specifics to your lab, but how does that fit into a kind of bigger picture? Surely part of the advantage of being there is being part of the broader ecosystem, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So one of the reasons we were really enthusiastic about joining ARC here was because of really of their vision for developing the site and this, so this building and there's also a neighboring building and really bringing in lots of companies, both small companies and larger companies together under one roof and being able to collaborate and talk to people from other companies, having lots of other scientists around is very important. We're also very fortunate that they have some shared facilities, basic sort of things like autoclave and glass wash that are very important and very expensive, but it's good to have on site. And frankly, it's good that we don't have to pay for them. And so just really building that ecosystem around this area in, in Hammersmith is is really important to us. So 
there's a few tenants here now. It's really nice to see other people moving in too. And I think there'll be lots more people moving in very soon. You know, this will be a real biotech you know, cluster or hub, I think, within the next year or two. And you're there as trailblazers, right? Right from the beginning. How important is it to have that kind of proximity to London as well, to the city? And obviously where you were working before you started Sarnia, but, you know, also access to other great academic institutions. Like, why does it matter being in the capital? Yeah, London is a really great place to do, you know, science, particularly this kind of science. Having collaborations with with academics is, is much easier. And, you know, getting people who are well-trained in science coming out of those universities is much easier. And also just being in London itself, it's nice to live in London. It's easy to attract people to London. People want to be here. The area we're in, in, in Hammersmith, is not central London, so it's not quite as busy, but it's it's very well connected, so it's easy to get to. Just from a personal perspective, that's much better. You know, it's much better to be able to go places to, you know, other universities, visit other companies, whoever, with our, you know, the good transport links we have around here than it would be if you were sort of in other sites, say north of London or other parts of the UK. But I'm obviously biased because I'm here. It's nothing against the rest of the UK. Do you think that the UK punches above its weight when it comes to science and biotech? Do you think we have earned a right to be a global leader, I suppose, on the world stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the UK really is a leader in the sort of biotech and academic science space for for a number of different types of science. Um, And I think that comes through a combination of very good universities, relatively good funding and things here for private companies. So there's a number of reasons that the UK does produce very good scientists, I think. And that really allows us to compete on a global stage, if you like, even though we're a relatively small company. Returning now to Sarnia, what are you excited about in the next weeks and months ahead? What does the immediate future look like? I'm really excited just to see the kind of data we're generating coming in. So we've been very lucky because we're able to set up quite quickly. We've already got some quite exciting preliminary data and just seeing the team settle in the lab and, and doing the experiments and getting the data from that. And then time will pass very quickly, I'm sure, and we'll have to go out and, and fundraise again. But I think because we're able to start so quickly. Hopefully that will go smoothly. But yeah, just seeing the team grow, seeing people start work here and do experiments is is very exciting. And then as we get further through this journey, just getting closer to the clinic, closer to being able to treat different neurological disorders is just really exciting and motivating for all of us. How many of you are there now, Andy? There are 10 of us at Sania now. Of course, this episode is all about taking space, taking your first space, that kind of spin out from university phase. So what tips or advice can you share when it comes to finding the right place to work from your own experiences? The biggest tip is just to be persistent and cast a wide net. We viewed a lot of places and I think at some point we were a little bit disheartened by what was available and what we thought we could get. Being persistent, seeing lots of different areas, thinking about what you really need and what you can maybe outsource if you don't have space for it yourself. But really just visiting places, I think, is is very important. Talking to the people who are running those places is very important. You will get a sense of how the space is going to be run. Just keep going and you will find the right space and make sure it is the right space for your company because that will make all the difference once you move in great advice andy and what a fantastic note to end on so thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all of the benefit of your experience so far thank you very much anna in our next episode 
the biggest of the drones that we make, the Stork STM, which is capable of carrying 135 kilos for 400 kilometers. I mean, it's the size of a small car. People are curious here. Everybody likes to try doing something different. And there's a mixture of younger, sort of multidisciplinary staff and then older, more domain-focused people. It's fascinating seeing what people can do. That was Paul Topping, Business Development Director at Animal Dynamics in Oxford, England. How do you find and employ the right people to fit with your business? And what do you do to recruit at pace when things start to scale rapidly for you? We have some valuable insights to share next time in the science of business. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times. This podcast has been brought to you by ARC, the smarter partner for science, and is a Fresh Air production. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.